Hello, this is KWAD Radio, and we're on the air today with Michael D'Ambrosio. He is from Philadelphia. He has uh, quite a few books, uh, most of them space adventures, and some of them time travel. A lot of great information um, for Michael, and we're waiting for him to get on the switchboard here, so that way we can move forward. We can go. We'll start with an interview, and then we'll take calls, and then uh, right after the first hour, we will be talking to Donald Jux about the space program, the new space program again. A little more detail on what each of those can do to help the project along. And we have our chat room up for anybody who'd like to just, you know, listen along and also maybe give us some questions on the chat room. The chat room's available right on blogtalkradio.com and you find KWOD Radio and you click on the show, you can listen directly at the same time that you also have the chat room up. You can leave us questions or just comments on that line. And we are still holding. So I'm going to let everyone know what his website is. He has a website with all his books on there. That way you can see uh, all the books that he has. He has two different publishers. Uh, four out of eight of his books are with AZ Publishing. And that would include Fracture Time, Twist of Fate, Dark Horizon, which is part of, all part of the Fracture Time series, which we are specifically talking about tonight. And then the horror book that he wrote a few years ago, that was Night Creeps. His website address is www.fracturedtime.com. That's F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-D-T-I-M-E.com. And from there, you can see a lot of his appearances. He makes personal appearances at conventions all over, all over the states. He is averaging, I think, 70 uh, conventions in the last five years. So he goes to quite a few of them every year. And that is where I met him. And that was in 2005. Uh, Western Con, right in Tempe, Arizona. Okay, we have somebody else online. Hello, this is Patty. We're on the air, KWAD Radio. Nope. We lost the caller. This technology is a wonderful thing, but sometimes it just doesn't quite 
doesn't quite do it sometimes with people's telephones trying to call in, and that doesn't always work. Sometimes things get in the way, like storms and all all sorts of things. This is KWAD Radio. Hi, Patty. There you are. Yeah, how you doing? <laughs> Good. I'm sure looking at never going in. It's coming in. So I think I dry, it knocked off and then came back in. Oh, yeah, hopefully I'm trying to figure out which line to commit on. Oh, well, the, the host number is a different number. And then oh, okay. the guest call in was the 714-242-5145 for all those who may not know. That's what the call-in number is. If you're if you're listening to this on on Blog Talk Radio, the guest call-in number is seven one four two four two five one four five. We do have a couple of people listening. Uh, one of them has bowed out, but just wishes to listen, so that's fine. And you've got uh, a couple of people in chat, in the chat room. Some people going in and out of the chat room. So. We're going to go ahead and get started. I talked a little bit about how you and I met. And yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and and uh, I can tell the story. It, uh, it was at WesterCon, and I think I believe you told me it was 2005. Uh, and uh, t- 2004, probably. Yeah. 2004. Okay. Now the uh, I met you there, and it was at a. Well, you were in a panel earlier that day, but uh, the night. Personally, went and talked to you afterwards, and then uh, later in the evening, we were doing we were doing one of these really funny kind con- of uh, panels that uh, then it's heights panel. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and and, uh, and I think that you had just enough to to make you fun that night. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good one. I and think we were just playing. Really- yeah, we were talking about uh, we're uh, what pirates don't need hotels. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that you were, I think, in, in your uh, pirate costume. Yeah, I remember that very well. Now that was that was the first time that we met, and then it was several years after that when I got the publishing company started that you and I talked, and a little bit after that you said, yeah, you know, you wanted to remaster your Fracture Time series, and you know, at the time we we discussed why you wanted to do that, and of course, it was good timing. Uh, you were already wanting to add uh, some material, uh, in, from you know something that you've been working on, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and of course, it just wound up being the perfect time to uh, mesh together and uh, see what we could do. Yeah, we've been going good ever since. <laughs> well, it's getting there, isn't it? It's getting there. Uh, 2010 was such a bad year for everybody. So the question, the first one is, what led you to write your Factor Time 
book and the series, and was there a pivotal event you can share with us? Well, back in uh, 1999, uh, it was one of my Middle East tours. Things were kind of boring over there at the time, and uh, they would always send us over books and uh, movies and stuff to watch, but there really wasn't anything out good at the time, and you know, I used to complain about it, you know, and guys get bored, you know, you, you know it's everything bothers you. And one of my friends said, joking around, that I should write my own book. And, yeah, I thought about it, and I was like, you know what, why not? So uh, I got myself a laptop, and, you know, I thought it might be, you know, I, I thought about doing something that was different. Um, you know, with so many people writing today, it's so hard to come up with something new and innovative. So I feared my characters had to be different, and I had to find ways to make my scenes different. So, uh you know, kind of, you know, gave me some, you know, some ideas, some food for thought there. And, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, you know, a couple of stories from people that, you know, romance is going bad. And, you know, I thought about putting in some dysfunctional romance and you know, a little bit of everything. So that, you know, kind of all came together and uh, kind of gave me the ideas. I guess that was kind of like the skeleton for Fractured Time. But um, a lot of this, a lot of the scenes I use in a lot of my stories, uh, you know, even with my newer series, uh, my Space Frontier series, a lot of them, uh, if you really look at them, some, uh, they parallel world, real world events. Uh, some of them are events that have to do with wars. Some of them just have to do with uphill battles by people trying to overcome odds. So there's always there's always something behind them. Um, like for instance, some of the things like uh, I like to feed on is like when we look at things like the Soviet Union. Everybody thought it was great when the Soviet Union fell, but then when we look back at it. You know, the reason the Soviet Union was what they were was because so many smaller countries were used to kill, you know, trying to kill each other all the time. You know, the same thing with the Middle East. We we took down Hussein, and everybody's trying to kill each other. So you kind of find out that there's always more to it than we than we realize. And uh, so a lot of these, you know, they've kind of became the uh, the motivating plots for a lot of my stories. And I needed some likable characters, some fun characters, and uh, I wanted to be somebody that wasn't like a MacGyver. You know, I had to be somebody that has as much bad luck as good luck, uh, somebody that, you know, has as much headaches with the women as he does, you know, the the, the good times. And uh, that, yeah, that kind of proved to be the strength of the book, I think. Um, some of the female uh, characters that are pretty competitive with the guys, um, you know, things like that. It just seems like there's a character for everybody. Yeah, I noticed that you were, said something about that you were comparing uh, if you were going to uh, compare to your book to say sci-fi Alice in Wonderland, yeah, <laughs> that seems kind, of, uh, kind of odd. Why would you think that it would be compared to Alice in Wonderland? Well, you figure Alice fell down the hole and, and went up in another world. So you figure uh, you look at Billy Brock, his plane kind of went through a hole and left him in another world. And uh, yeah, we had all kinds of, you know, not just sci-fi type uh, elements we had a lot of fantasy elements in that trilogy um, you know for instance especially in the second book because the second book was strong in fantasy I mean we got into a, a wizard an alien witch um, you know some of the things that caused them we had some zombies in there in one scene um, we had toward the end of Fractured Time and we have uh, you know griffins and a uh, wolfen uh, I mean we pretty much had I mean by the time that, that trilogy is over you've seen and heard everything um, you know, characters, you know, that you haven't seen before, uh, creatures you haven't seen before. So it made for a lot of fun. So it kind of gets, you know. It's for a big melting the, pot there, isn't it? Yeah. By the time by the time that, that series was over, uh, by the trilogy's over, uh, Billy Brock is ready to jump off a bridge, you know. It's just been one heck of a ride. When he finally gets, you know, gets back to 
you know, the end, back to home, you know, just he's not the same person after all that. So there's a lot of parallels to, I guess, Alice in Wonderland, you could say. I know you said something about that you had, uh, I'm not sure if this was this series or the other, that one of the characters, you know, that they, they had a child, and you used that child for a different series. Yeah, in the second book, Billy Brock gets involved with a uh, shapeshifter. Um, the woman, she's from a tribe. She actually turns out to be the, the queen of the tribe. Uh, these shapeshifters, they have uh, some traits like uh, uh, telepathy, you know, things like that. And because him being human and uh, the woman being a shapeshifter, uh, they have a little boy. And in the trilogy, that's all you really know about him. When the trilogy ends, there's this big mess of war still going on in space. And, you know, the characters in Fractured Time, they start off, they're like you and I, what we know today. So they don't know advanced science. They don't know all about aliens and advanced human races. So all that becomes new to them. So if you could imagine it from our point of view. So um, when the trilogy ends, this big war is still going on. Um, you know, the trilogy wasn't about them winning this war. It was about them getting back home. So uh, 18 years after the trilogy ends, the little boy that was born in book two, uh, his name is Will Saris. He becomes the lead character in, in the new series, in the Space Frontier series. And like his father, he's a little bit of a rebel, a little bit of a renegade uh, adventurer. And he's a, he graduates from the Space Fleet Academy. And being 18, he thinks, you know, he knows a better way to do everything. And it's kind of, you know, he follows the same path as his father. And a lot of the things he does gets him in the, sometimes into more trouble than it does good. But, you know, that's, again, that's what makes him fun to watch. So, uh, but that's why I, I, needed, well, I needed to link him back to the series because it, what made him special was his telepathy, uh, the difference between his telepathy and, and all the other alien intelligence out there and the other humans, was that he could cloak his. And that was a, a mutated trait that he inherited because his father was human. So that's that was the reason why I linked the two. Otherwise, I might have gone with something, you know, with a character totally, completely different. Wow. So you get, it does sound like you have a lot of different things going on in there. And, of course, we, you know, you and I both love the time travel element. How do you yeah. handle your time travel in this book? Well, I'd like to... Uh, try to always portray time travel as something that it's it's actually like an adverse effect of um, intergalactic transportation uh, technology that if you don't use it right um, you know the, the transportation aspect of it you know you start playing with the time part of it it could lead to a lot of problems and uh, that has a lot to do with in the Fractured Time Trilogy you know, an advanced technology that advanced humans had that was stolen by a wizard that didn't, really didn't know how to use it um, you know, what happens to our characters is like collateral damage. And then they find out, as the, the trilogy goes on, they're not the only ones. There were worlds that were destroyed because of this playing with time. Uh, there were a whole lot of things that happened. So it, it, time is a very sensitive thing because if, if you're a responsible individual and you could travel through time, you, you may be able to, you know, make it harmless. But the little subtle things that you do could change. I mean, they could change the whole future. So it's you know it's something that I like to look at it that intelligent beings even in the future if even if they have the ability it's not something that you really want to do it's not something like public transportation let's put it that way <laughs> but the other well, maybe another, someday yeah maybe someday. that's the aspect of time that I wonder sometimes time always seems to exist in you know in air, in a gravitational area like within like a, in, for instance in the solar system 
you know, this, the whole system spins. Everything's based on gravity. But I wonder if you got outside, away from gravity, you're out into space, way out, you know, somewhere out there, if time still elapses. You know, so that's something I'm, yeah, I'm looking at uh, perhaps playing with in some of my future books. That's something that, uh, that I think about a lot. You know, uh, how does how does time how's time handled in space? Right, because even you know, I mean, we send people, yeah, we send people to the moon to we to study gravity, but I mean they're still under the effects of gravity because the moon, you know, is a tra- you know everything revolves around the sun, so I mean a whole solar system is going to be controlled by uh, affected by gravity in some way or another. So that's why I say I wonder if you got outside of uh, of a system, if you're out in the middle somewhere, out in the void, if time still elapses, you know, if you would still age, uh, you know, that could be the effect of gravity on our bodies. You take, you know, away the gravitational fields that, you know, we exist in, if we would still age. Well, I do know that, and if we can get into time travel a little bit, if, if farther away we are from Earth, less, you know, it's supposed to be the time it lapses, lapses different. So if you have a twin that's, you know, goes past Pluto and they come back, uh, time has been very short for the one twin that's been time for, you know, been space travel, but people on Earth are a lot older. So... <laughs> yeah, so the sure gravity, that, you know, you wonder if that could put, uh, play a role in it. Yeah, I'm not sure if gravity or magnetic, but it's definitely something out there. They they have said that you know because of uh, physics that 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 uh, that causes the time delay. And uh, so yeah, I think what we're I, sound or not sound um, time is going to come. Time travel will really become important is being able to travel, like, from planet to planet, like, going to, from the solar system to another system, the Vegas system or someplace. Once you get outside our system, all of a sudden those light years don't mean anything. You know, you just kind of, you just go. So uh, I know, I, I know one thing for sure. I don't think that, I think you probably feel the same way I, I do, is I sure hope that it's not the government that takes control of time. Yeah, they'll keep turning really us back and making us pay more taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll have to pay for our time travel, huh? Yeah, can you imagine if you could use it if you were late for a bill, back time up so you paid it on time? Uh, they wouldn't like that. I wonder how much airlines will actually charge us for our baggage then. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting article on that today about how much money they're making on charging for baggage. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really big bugaboo everybody's talking about last few yeah, days. Yeah, it's astronomical. Yeah, they say, well, they need to make money somehow. Well, not that much. No, there's a point where it's greedy. Yes, and you know that's that's been the name of the game uh, lately. Is is how much greed can you know can we handle in this world? And uh, right now we're feeling that those effects. But uh, anyway, I'd like to ask you, since you have so many elements in your story. Um, are there any influences in your life that have encouraged you to stay the course in this publishing business? Uh, there's quite a few. I, I find as a rule, I like to, you know, I'm always learning. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of interesting people. Um, for instance, Terry Brooks, you know, I've, I've met him on several occasions and, you know, he's been a great influence on me, uh, especially with screenplays. Uh, we had, we had some good conversations on, on the nightmares of, of screenplay writing. 
Uh, Laurel K. Hamilton, uh, she has the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series. Uh, some of the things that she was able to do with her characters, with the, the lead character, Anita Blake, I mean, they were, she put so much into those characters. And it made me realize when I was starting out that the level I was at compared to where she was, and this is going back you know, some 10 years ago, and I, I kind of realized, yeah, this is where I want to be. I want my characters to be, you know, to be able to reach out and grab a reader like hers do. Um, there's another uh, interesting writer, Storm Constantine. She's a horror writer from the United Kingdom, and uh, she's she has a lot of interesting stories. And she she's, I guess, what her her outstanding trait is. She will she will write about things with uh, like ancient cults and all kinds of things like that in her stories. But the level of research and detail that she puts into them is phenomenal. I mean, for a fiction book, I mean, she she puts more research into a book than anybody that's writing like a documentary, a biography. I mean, she, you know, her perseverance is just outstanding. So, there, there's, so there's a lot of people like that. I, you know, that's the thing that I, I tell people is that, you know, they say, well, you don't have to do any research in fiction writing. But that's not true at all. Especially if you have any historical facts, that's you know, true. You need to get you need to get a, information right, and, and for your specific case, you you probably since you have a lot of different elements to your story, you have to research a lot of different things or read books written about these things, uh, in fiction or, or or nonfiction. Is there any you know a lot of research that you do, um, perhaps for this space? Uh, you know, for 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 your series that you've been writing. Yeah, there's sometimes I'll, I'll have to reach search uh, some things. Uh, one of the things that's really helped me is for one, working in a nu- uh, nuclear plant. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between a nuclear plant and a space station. For instance, like your watertight doors, your containment hatches, things like that. They're made, you know, for uh, for sealing off, you know, in the event of any of uh, emergencies or what. But in the same case of a spaceship. You have your your watertight hatches. Well, you probably call them airtight in that case, because if you had a breach of any of your compartments, you know you got to be able to seal or your whole ship will implode. Um, some of the eerie things about, like for instance, working in the nuclear plant on a weekend or at night when there's very few people there, you're walking around some of the parts where it's like it's really eerie. You know, and I find the wheels turning upstairs where I'm thinking about, wow, this would be a good scene on one on for this part of the book or that part. Um, my years uh, before when I was with the uh, Air Force and Air National Guard, uh, a lot of the things I did with weapons technology, with aircraft, I was able to you know, apply some of the things from that. And I don't like to apply too much uh, from, these, from some of these things because I don't want it to be a, a textbook on how to make a bomb or how to, how to you know, do something with, uh, with nuclear power. Um, it's more like I might take a little aspect of it, uh, nothing to do with the actual part. But, for instance, like... Um, like a, the 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 firing train for a, for a, a bomb, you know that you would use like on a miss, you know, launch with a missile or so different things like that. So I'll put little aspects of it that give it credibility. Um, you know, enough to make people have to be able to feel they want to believe that this could happen, even if you know it's not, you know, it's not going to. But it's just the part of the escapism. It's got to feel real. And some of these things that I can put in there, based on my backgrounds, you know, it's really helpful. Um, I've seen like for instance. Uh, uh, one scene, like I can talk about, when one of my first trips to, over to the Middle East, when I saw somebody get beheaded, uh, that was that was an eye opener. But it kind of made me realize the impact that something seeing somebody get killed like that would have on a character. So uh, it kind of helped me bring a little bit more of the 
you know, the, of the intensity to it. Um, another thing I tried that was a little bit different. Last, last year I went to a convention down in Atlanta. It was called Frolicon. And, uh, you know, when they, you know, invited me, they said it's a little different than what you're used to. It's an adult science fiction convention. And it was more of an alternate lifestyle convention. And as much as a surprise it was to me when I got there, I found it very interesting to, to see all these different types of people and all the, their different, um, I don't know if hobbies is a good word for it, but their lifestyle. And uh, it was kind of neat because it made me realize when you have characters, some of these, these traits, if you're going to put into these characters, whether it's like a sadistic antagonist or somebody that like really likes to inflict pain, I mean, there's things like to actually see and know people that really do this kind of stuff you know, it's really, it takes it to a whole new level. It makes you realize things. Um, I mean, I saw things like some of the things fall under S&M, you know, some of the things were more of the sexual nature. I mean, it was really, it was just a whole different world that opened up to me that I had no idea. Yeah, so it was really educational, and I think it's, you know, for future books, it's going to really play a lot in my characters, you know, as far as being able to make them entertaining and, you know, kind of broaden the horizons a little bit. <laughs> Well, you know, I always say about uh, books and, and writing fiction even is research, research, research. So uh, in this particular case, that'd be kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah, but then, no, there are things, though, like sometimes, like if, if you're going to, like like some of the plots that I have, uh, they're going to parallel something in real life, then I want to research the all the, you know, a little more the, the the bigger picture to know why those things happened and see how they fit into my story. You know, it wouldn't it wouldn't really make sense if I had had something that happened that was, you know, even if people don't recognize what it's parallel to, but it's got to have a point. And you know, if you if you could have a great scene, but if there isn't a point to it, sometimes that kind of almost makes you seem like you're doing just almost like um, how would you call it? like like a just you know you're throwing events in there like um like high high action scenes and stuff just for the sake of putting them in there. But if people can feel it, like understand well. It's not that somebody just felt like doing something off the wall here. There really was a lot of rationale, a lot of thought that went into this. So, you know, it's, it, it is helpful to do the research. Um, it's always good, like, to, to know a little bit about, the, like, for instance, the types of engines that they're they're looking at out there for possible space travel. Um, you know, there's some of the different groups out there, the commercial groups that are looking at making spaceships. Uh, they say they can do it better and cheaper than NASA. And... Uh, like, for instance, Popular Science is a great book for uh, finding out science information. And it's funny because a lot of times I find out some of the things, scenes I'm going to use, I find out that there's a whole lot more to it than I really thought, and it really gives me a lot of good data. There was, um, it's, it's kind yeah. of funny that you brought up alternate, uh, you know, new space and alternate space travel because we'll be talking to Don uh, Donald Jacks a little bit uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, about new space and how we can all become part of that. So just letting everybody know that that's right after you. Yeah, Don and I are going to build ourselves an ark, an intergalactic ark. <laughs> and we're intergalactic going to ark. We're going to take people on a party around the universe. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like fun. Definitely have to go on that. Does everybody be like, uh, you know, we'd be in space and you know, so all sorts of fun. Um, okay, so... You've, have you ever taken characters, uh, some characters that you've written about, uh, taken pieces of people that you've met and made them into characters? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're people per se that I know. I would say they're different. It's like a, a whole hodgepodge of traits that I see. Um, 
for instance, like with uh, some of the female characters, like in in the in the trilogy, um, we have the two girls, Ronnie and Randy. Uh, they kind of represent like a lot of American women today. We have uh, a lot of our women. They're very competitive with the men, especially in sports. Um, they're finally getting a chance to show what they can do, and they don't. And a lot of them like to go head to head with men. And I found, like for instance, from playing hockey, uh, some of these girls are just every bit as good as the guys. And there's the reaction of a lot of the men to it is kind of entertaining. There, you know, there's a lot of fellows out there that don't want any parts of it. A woman does not belong out there on the same uh, rink with them. And it's funny when you see a woman put a hit on a man and knock him down. You know, and, you know man, it gets up and throws his stuff away and says, "I'm done. I'm never playing again." I mean, just some of the reactions to it. It makes it, it really makes for a lot of fun because you know, you have like some people like like myself. It doesn't matter to me. I think it's actually more entertaining to have a mixed group of people. But uh, like I said, there's a lot of people that are still very sensitive to it. So that makes for a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, some questions are, is there anything that surprised you about writing and the experience? Um, there's, let's see. That's a good question. Um, some of the things... I, I guess the the movie aspect of it really caught me off guard. Um, when the very first uh, version of, of Fractured Time came out, uh, that was from Pentland Press. And right after they printed the first 1,000, they went out, they vanished. They went out of business. So I was kind of left without a publisher for a little bit. But a week after the, the, that first book came out, Centropolis contacted me about uh, the, the rights to the book. They wanted to do the movie. And the interesting thing that I kind of learned by accident with Pentland was uh, you know, I t- you know they they let me keep the book rights. Um, you know, they were just interested in doing the book. They said anything else, they don't want anything to do with. Uh, because normally they were big on textbooks, so fiction was a little bit new, uh, a newer venue for them there at the time. Um, but it, it kind of worked out good because, like I said, uh, Centropolis was interested in doing the movie from it. We had uh, several conversations. Uh, Dean Devlin, who well know writes writes the material for Stargate. Uh, him and Roland Emmerich from Centropolis, they did. Uh, they teamed up for Independence Day. Uh, fantastic screenwriter. They were ready to make the you know sign a deal for this. Then 9/11 happened, and uh, their VP of development called me two days later and said, "You didn't get your tickets yet, did you?" It's like, why? And uh, they because of that they changed gears. But you know, it kind of opened my eyes to wow. You know, you know if maybe this would be a good movie. And you know, after I, when I finished the trilogy which is probably, probably the first version of it, was probably 2004. I actually spent about three years, uh, spent, uh, I spent a lot learning about screenplays, talking to people, and getting really getting involved in them. Uh, and that was really kind of helped with the, a lot of the conventions. Um, you know, Some of them are, are strictly literary, some of them are multi-genre. Well, they have, well, they'll have uh, movie people come in, uh, sometimes producers, sometimes the actors. And I really got a chance to get a, you know, a lot of first-hand knowledge from, from these people. Uh, they gave me a lot of sources to research, you know, how to do a good screenplay, what, like, kind of a, not the, not the ABCs of it, but the motivating factors for why a script sells and why it doesn't. Trying to understand from the producer's view what they're looking at. You know, what, you know, you might have the best story in the world, but nobody can make it for certain reasons, you know, that type of thing. So I would say, like, when I started, you know, with the first book, I never even imagined possibly getting involved in the movie end of it. And like I said, because of, how fast that all happened, you know, one phone call out of the blue, you know, it really opened my eyes to, you know, the screenplay end of it, you know, and so now I'm kind of juggling the both of them, and each one's like a full-time job. 
So that's really where your dream is, is to uh, finish the scripts and actually get them into big screen or television. Yes. Um, you know, for me, everything's like you, you set a goal, and once you accomplish that goal, then you have to set a higher goal, and it always keeps you going. And in fact, I kid with people about when I when I was first writing Fractured Time, and I was so worried about if if anybody would ever want to publish it. You know, I had some friends read a couple of the sections at work. They loved it. They said this is really good. I was always like, I guess all the way back to first grade. I, I, it seemed like writing came natural to me, and also, I mean, I was really lucky in that respect. You know, I didn't have to, um, you know, spend a lot of time having different, you know, different people edit it. Usually, I was pretty close. And all which worked out good, but um, yeah, I said it's a, uh, you know, the, the, I guess you get into the movie end of it, it's a whole different animal, and you really have to try to think in two different speeds there. But I do hope uh, with the TV end of it, uh, for instance, when I wrote, I did write uh, a screenplay and a thirteen episode TV series to go with Fracture Time, and I was fortunate because a lot of the chapters in in the book, they're individual adventures, so almost like mini adventures, so they weren't locked into a sequence. So when you write a script from a book, you're probably only taking 20 to 30% of the book. And all the material I couldn't use, it was kind of opportunistic to write the TV series to go with it. So what I, and that's kind of what coincidentally led to you know, the, the remastering the, the trilogy, because I actually came up with, um, I guess it was uh, probably four new chapters that I really wish I would have, uh, the material I wish I had back when I originally did the book. So uh, this when we remastered it, that was one of the things that gave me a chance to really redo it and add this this new material to it. So that was kind of an opportunistic moment for me. Uh, so what else do you have, Patty? Patty? We got cut off for a few minutes there. So if you can hear me, Mike, go ahead and call back in. Sometimes these technology is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't quite work all the time. There, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got disconnected uh-huh. there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Technology is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Until that happens again, just, you know, I wasn't sure if it was you or me, and then I had to call back in and re- reinitiate it. So sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, we, you know, again, technology is a wonderful thing, but sometimes <laughs> when it gets works. in our way. <laughs> so we were talking about your, your the writing process of your, you know, part, your particular series, and... Uh, that for anybody that wants to know is first it's Fractured Time is the first book, Wish the Fate is the second book, and Dark Horizon is your third book in that series. And uh, is, did you have any dreams been realized as a result of your writing? Uh, there's been I guess quite a few. Um, I've gotten to meet you know some some big name movie stars that were always that I was always fans of. Uh, like, for instance, Marina Sirtis from Star Trek, um, Virginia Hay and Gigi Edgeley from Farscape. Uh, you know, a lot of these, these type of actors, uh, Kevin Sorbo, uh, 
to, to actually be able to talk to them. What was it like, you know, when they were, you know, ma- you know making these shows? Um, you know, cause I've always been a big sci-fi fan, you know, whether it's a TV series or a movie. And also, I, I would say it really gave me a chance to, to meet some famous people. Um, Laurel K. Hamilton, for instance, Terry Brooks. Um, I, I never thought I'd, I'd be sitting sitting at a bar having a drink with Terry Brooks, you know, you know yeah. talking about screenplays. I know that he had written a book about that experience and, and how he, his books, and had said he had all sorts of trouble with the hook, but you know, the, the uh, adapting hook to the screenplay and uh, the trouble he was having tr- trouble with them on that because they kept changing the script. So, yeah, uh, um, that same thing happened with Star Wars. Um, George Lucas actually hired him to do the fourth Star Wars, which actually I guess would have been the first. Mm-hmm. And he, I guess, uh, the way he explained it, probably about halfway through, he had enough and said, that's it, I'm done. You know, it's just too many people calling and say, hey, we want to change this, we want to change that. And he's like, wait a minute, we just changed that. You know, and, uh, he, you know, he was really good about it, you know, just kind of giving me, like a, a little bit of an indoctrination into what to expect when you get involved with the movie companies, especially with rewrites. You know, he said it could be a real painful experience. Do you have any plans for the future, work-related or personal plans? For, uh, as far as, uh, let's see. I think right now um, my big goal is to, is to finish my Space Frontier series. Um, right now there's three books in it. Uh, I'm trying to finish the fourth one, The Galaxy of the Damned, and, you know, put that one to rest. And uh, that's I, I already kind of know the the ending to that, which is good, uh, because that kind of starts off, that's a, um, that scene, the ending of that is part a big part of another script that I just wrote. Um, so it kind of worked backwards in that case. Uh, so I'd like to get that done. Uh, I really want to go back into um, some of my other scripts, you know, make maybe make a few changes on them to try to, you know, make them a little more marketable. Um, I haven't really thought about it as far as novels, what might come next. Um, if if I'm the, if I was to get a movie deal for Night Creeps, uh, you know, with the, right now there's a probably about five different movie companies, you know, that have expressed a lot of interest in Night Creeps in the script. If I was to sell that, I would probably look at doing a sequel. You know, there are a couple of loose ends I left in there that are really subtle, that would kind of open the door to a sequel, but. Um, yeah, I guess with uh, so many possibilities out there, you know, that, that right now I guess the main focus is still Galaxy of the Damned, getting that finished. I don't think that Night Crates would make a great, great movie, so that would be, and then uh, that would be wonderful if, we, if that happened. <laughs> yeah, that was better you know, sales and everything else with it. So that would be that would be terrific, and of course, see it, another another book behind it. That'd be great. Yeah, um, so there'll there'll be more down the road, uh, plenty more books. Uh, I'm looking at probably at some point in time, and I don't know when. Uh, my latest uh, script I wrote, it's called Princess Pain. Uh, I was at Philly uh, Comic Con last year, and I had a chance to talk with an actress there, uh, Maxine Wassa, and we had a, you know a bit of a discussion on movies and scripts. And she's done quite a lot of a, a ton of roles. Uh, she's been like, um, oh gosh, some of the shows were like Porky's, Miami Vice. Uh, you know, Spring Resort. There, she's she's been in a lot, but she's one of those people. She's beautiful. I mean, everybody would know, would know her face, but you know, very few people would remember her name. You know, because she just doesn't get the the, the high, higher billing. So we talked about you know uh, the possibility of me writing a script that could feature her. And um, 
I had some ideas on it, and by the time the convention was over, you know, we talked about it briefly, and, um, you know, she was anxious to, you know, see what I come up with. So uh, yeah, I wrote the script, and about five, it took about five months, and I contacted her. She looked at a copy of it, and she loved it. So she's with a management company, and she's trying to, you know, push it through, the, you know, with them to see if they can't help us with it. Um, yeah, it would be great for her. She would obviously be the lead star in it. And um, then from my end of it, you know, I do all the, you know, the, the, the regular channels, you know, marketing, um, some of the websites, uh, InkTip, for instance. InkTip's big with marketing to producers, uh, things like that. So um, so that that that's one that I would love to actually novelize that. Usually I tend to do the book first and then the, the screenplay. But this one, you know, there was so much more I would have loved to have put in that screenplay, but I couldn't. So you know, doing a book on that would probably, you know, probably be a cool thing. But uh, that's probably a little ways off. Uh, yeah. But unfortunately, one of the things I'm running into is having so many books because now I have seven. Especially when I go to a convention, and I have a table. You know, people look and they say, "All these books are yours." So it seems the more you get, you know, that it gets to be a little bit tougher, you know, to, to you know push them all. You know, because they're all my babies. I love them all. Right. All equal equal children for you. Yeah. Uh, feel that, do you feel that one that you know one good book perhaps uh, because you have seven of them that you're finding that you're competing with your own books? Uh, not in a strange sort of way. Yes and no. Um, I guess the easiest way to explain that is when the the newer series came out, the Space Frontier series, people suddenly became more interested in all of my books. And what I always hear is, well, I want to start from the beginning. So since the Space Frontier series, probably since I had uh, book two come out of that, uh, the, the trilogy I think is selling more now than ever because a lot of people want to read that before they read the new series. So in, in that respect, it's been a great thing. Um, it, in one way, it competes because they're going to read that one, the, the trilogy first. But you know, I'm sure they're going to love. You know, everything I'm hearing, people are, are really enjoying the trilogy. And like I said, it's funny when I go to the conventions now. People want to buy all six, you know, or else some, some will, you know, the seventh one, Night Creeps, is a little more adult-oriented, so I don't always sell all seven. But, you know, it's funny because that's that's where a lot of my sales have been racking up um, because people don't, you know, they see, well, there is a link between the trilogy and the new series, so they want them all. And that's, so it's it's worked out well in a lot of ways. So I don't think it's like a competing thing. Uh, Night Creeps is different than the others, so you get a different type of reader for that. Um, Space Frontiers, you know, people... If they're not sure, they'll usually buy one. Uh, the first, they'll buy Fracture Time or I of Icarus, the first one in each of the series. So, um, so either way, I think it's always worked out because I think when people like what you do, they want everything. They want to read the whole thing and see where everything, how you got from here, you know, from this part to that part, um, what the relationship is with characters. Uh, sometimes it's just your style of writing. They like to see how your writing, yeah, does your style evolve? Does it stay the same? Right. Right. I find that I write. I, I read the same way. You know, if I find a, a somebody I like to read, then I want everything of theirs. You know, I did that with Laura Hamilton and Terry Brooks. Um, I did that with uh, quite a few authors that I suddenly just fell in love with, and went and got everything of theirs. Um, I have found though that uh, with a lot of these authors who are with big publishing companies. Wind up doing too many books in a series, and it winds up being uh, not quite that they start losing the momentum, and yeah. the story starts to fizzle and lose its luster. 
Yeah, one of the things I found from uh, talking with people, uh, talking with like, authors with the big houses, um, when they're under contract, they have a time frame. They have to do X amount of books, um, and quite a few of them have had some really bad books come out, not because they couldn't write a better book, but because uh, you know, the, the, the publishing house wanted that book. They, they said, you contracted, we need it by this date. And you know sometimes when you're writing a book, uh, when you're on a roll with it and everything's falling into place, you could write a book in six months. Um, sometimes, if you, depending upon your subject matter, you might need close to a year to actually complete that book. And that's going, that, that year, that extra time is coming off of the, the time you have for your next book. So what a lot of these writers are finding is, yeah, the publishing houses aren't aren't always very forgiving about them, you know giving you more time. And as a result, we you know we get that where you just kind of get almost like a piece of crap, just something they throw on paper here, and now you got it, leave me alone. Uh, we've seen that in the music industry way back when with Boston, you know the same deal they had. They got a lot of pressure with the third album, you know that they they they, didn't, they weren't ready for it, and the uh, music uh, group company they belonged to said, no, oh, we want it now. So. They gave it to him, and it wasn't very good. So uh, that's, like I said, unfortunately. that way. You can't push it. No. Yeah, and it's tough because a lot of times, I mean, when you look at what goes on with the big houses, how they're set up, they're they're kind of locked into it. They really have to have everything fall into place on time. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, they know they're hurting themselves by pushing an author, but by the same token, if they don't, it, it you know costs them a lot of money in other, other uh, venues, advertising, things like that. So they're kind of in a catch-22. So it's, you know, kind of, like I said, it's it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, that's one of the things I like about being small press. Um, I have no pressure when I when I finish writing. I know I have something that I like that I'm proud of. You know, nobody can tell me you have to get this done. We can't wait. Um, the same thing with the book covers. You know, we could talk about book covers. Uh, for instance, the book cover when we redid the Fractured Time trilogy. The book cover you did for Fractured Time was fantastic. It was so much better, you know, so much more creative than what I had on the on the original version, and uh, that's you know to, to be able to do something like that to talk about it and say hey we can change this and do it uh, with the big house. There's so many people involved. There's so many decision makers. You, you really don't have that luxury. I know that I was kind of funny about that one was that uh, I was giving you some ideas um, and was sending them to you, and I sent you the picture. That uh, you have on the Fractured Time cover, as because I knew you loved like, you love skulls. Yeah. And and I said, <laughs> okay, but this one's got an hourglass and and the, and the skull. Oh yeah, I think you'd really like this because it looked more uh, pirate looking. It did so, with the candle the candle uh, burning in front of the skull and all that. Kind of like got in, made you think a little bit more along the lines of the witchcraft. So you were kind of blending a few things in with that picture. Blended the pieces and and so I said, you know, I'll send this to him because I think I think. You personally would have liked it, and you wanted to saying, "Yeah, that's it. That's what I want on the cover," which truly blew me away because that's not what I intended. <laughs> well, you I know, tell you, that's, it worked. It's really good. I've, I've so many people comment on it. You know, a lot of people come over and they say, "You know, I don't read science fiction. I don't like fantasy or horror. I'm more of a nonfiction reader." But with a cover like that, I got to read it. I mean, I, I've heard probably probably six or seven people, you know, this year alone say that. So that's that's really a compliment to you. I mean, it's it's really like the coloring of you know the orange lettering for the title, um, the glow from the candle. It's just all it's it's. I mean, it's just captivating. Lightning going through the book and and it goes through the the title as well as through you know behind your set there. So yeah, it, it, the thing is that I know that we were working on that um, you know, touch and go. I wasn't finding the right elements 
until suddenly uh, it was, you know, pulled those things together. And then, of course, then you said, yeah, that's the one I want. And that's not the one I was even showing you. Uh, it's kind of funny how that happens. So uh, I'm glad that, that you guys, that you like it. And that uh, it's worked out well. Because if it gets attention, then we did something right. If it's getting sales, then I'm happy. Well, the funny thing, too, when you really have to look at a book, uh, there's a number of aspects of a book. And it's all about making someone feel pleasure. Someone, you know, has to enjoy your book. Uh, you know, when they go into a bookstore, in most cases, they look, they see the spine, they see the title, and the title has to be interesting enough to catch them. Then they'll take it out, they look at the cover, and the cover's got to make them feel even better. You know, it's got to make them feel this looks, this is going to be good. And then when they the, they read the back or they actually go in and read a few pages, uh, you know, the biggest thing I'm, I'm learning is like the first chapter really has to be good. You know, it really has to be a hook. Um, the old style of writing a lot of times kind of led into things where the first chapter might be introductions, where it was a little bit boring, but it led up to something. Well, now a lot of it is like the James Bond movies. You have the big, a, a big event happens at the beginning, and then it, then it yeah. picks up the story from the casual point. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so I've kind of learned to adjust a little bit to that, which, I mean, you know, today's readers are impatient. You know, we're all impatient. Everything's faster paced. So when we look at something, we look at those first couple pages, we want to get hooked. You know, we, we don't have the patience to wait until page 25 or page 30 to get hooked. Right, right. And then if you look at the history of writing, usually they start slow and go in, you know, into some reaction later. Now, as you said, you have to come out with, uh, with the barrels blaring in order to catch your attention and then keep it. So that's always uh, always a tough job at the very beginning. Um, so I was going to ask you, you have two space-based series. Why did you decide on this on these genres when you have an affinity with horror? Well, I think more a lot of it has to do with, uh, with my mind. It's more of a technical mind, but uh, technical can get boring. So I figure if you took a technical journey... Uh, like, for instance, like if it's based on some science-type thing, like, for instance, fractured time, what happens to them? It has to do with um, tractor beams through portals, um, things like that. And they're all things that may be possible in our lifetime or maybe not, but there, there's, there has to be some kind of a scientific back basis for them that they can be done. So, um, you know, to send somebody on a journey like that and uh, then to introduce different things into it, some of the horror, some of the fantasy the whole thing, you know, the whole thing is, is you have no idea what's coming, um, and how do you how how do you adapt to something like that? You're not trained. You're not a trained soldier. Um, and when you see a lot of these things, um, you have like for instance, uh, some of the relationships. You know, you have people that are in it. You know, all of a sudden you find yourself stranded. You're you're on. You don't know if it's another world, another time. You don't know how you got there, and you don't know how you're going to survive. And you know, you're going to have people that are going to step up and say, "Well, look, we got to do something." And you're going to get other people that are going to sit there just stunned, you know, and just just stay, you know, they'll sit there until they just, you know, you know, almost like pretty much disappear. You know, there's doers and there's there's watchers when it comes to that kind of scenario. Uh, the military tries to teach you to be a doer, you know, in a survival situation. So you're going to have your, you know, that's how some of your people become the survivors, and some of them they don't survive. You know, how many times you'll see in a movie yeah. where uh, some. Yeah, you know, there's a creature out there somewhere. Whether it's like a, a real one, you know, like a, like a tiger or a dinosaur, or you know, it could be any kind of creature. But you got a group of people. They know there's something out there. They know it's coming, and they all start running. 
and then you always get the one that keeps looking back and trips and falls. And it's funny, you know, because you see it like, you know, if you're hanging out with friends in the woods and you're running, you know, you know, trying to hide from somebody, there's always somebody that, you know, that has to keep looking back and trips and falls. And you know, these things, you know, the movie makes a little bit of a mockery of it, you know, by doing it over and over. But yeah. it's true. I mean, there's a lot of people that, like, you learn to think, like, survival-minded. Um, you know, one of the things that becomes important if you're in an isolated, like, if you were on a spaceship stranded out in space or another planet, well, all of a sudden your relationships become very important because you only have a handful of people. Now, let's say, um, you know, so, if, if you know, you're the female and there's there's two other females and there's one more male. Well, guess what? You know, you don't want to be the one that gets locked out but don't get a male, and then vice versa. And the same thing with the males. You have, you know, four males and two females. Well, guess what? You know, you don't want to, you know, you know, it's all of a sudden everything becomes important. You know, the, the relationships are important. Um, you know, and you've got to find there's a balance to that because someone trying to push a relationship in a stressful stressful situation like that, you know, the, you know, the other party's not going to be too, you know, they're probably thinking about survival, and this one's worried about getting hooked up. So, you know, you... <laughs> It, it can be, like I said, it, there's a balance to it, and sometimes like you have to let it, let the characters let it play out, and you know, but you can see where they start, you know, different ones start trying to like almost like mark their territory, but you know, sometimes it doesn't work, and you know things like that. So you get a lot of these things that come into play because sometimes it's not just about survival; it's about you know having a mate uh, or having people that you can count on that that can watch your back, uh, you know, just knowing that there's you know you're with a group that you can count on to survive. You know, where that's where you have your strength in numbers. You know, it doesn't help if you have a group of ten when only two people are willing to fight and the other eight are willing to run. Right. You know, True. all of a sudden the two people are standing there ready to fight and they turn around, where'd everybody go? Yeah, actually, and then, like you said, it's important when you can get a group that you can trust. Yeah, and, and science, science fiction, too, and horror, there's a, there's a, a very fine line that divides the two. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of stories we read, a lot of movies we see. It's hard to. It's sometimes it's very hard to define one or the other. Um, aliens, for instance, you know, would you say Alien was science fiction or was it horror? Sometimes you could base it on the um, on the, the arena where it happens. Um, if it happens in space, it's science fiction. If it happens in the jungle, it's horror. I mean, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. Sometimes you really don't know. I mean, sometimes it's tough. Do you uh, kind of plan out what you're going to write, or just kind of go see your pants? Uh, a lot of times, I see it as, when I see different scenes. I see them as a movie happening in my head, and a lot of times that's my inspiration too with the with the screenplays. Because when I'm seeing it as a movie, I know what I want to see. I know what I want it to be, and a lot I'll envision myself as like the extra person there among these people. And like let's say like for instance, Fracture Time. Um, I'm running with these people. We're you know. Yeah, we know there's something coming. Um, the, you know, the, the scene with the saber-toothed tigers. Uh, so, so we're running, but I'm running and I'm watching them. Are they, are they convincing me that that we're really scared that there's something chasing us? Uh, the scene where they get to the post office and they they try to get through the door. I mean, I, you know, all this, all these things have to be believable. And it's like that, that for instance, in that scene, it's got to be scary when the the tiger went and gets the guy's leg before he can shut the door. Um, yeah, it seems like that. I mean, you really have to feel it. If it's a romance scene, you have to be realistic. If you're sitting there and there's there's some things that just happened, uh, frightening things, and you see, you know, you know, the one couple, and they all of a sudden they start, you know, feeling romantic about each other. Is, is that believable? You know, and sometimes it just 
I say you have to, you know, be the, be be there in the scene with them to to really think about the credibility of the scene. Is it real? Is it is it going? To, does it portray what I want it to portray? Is it, does, is it scary? Is it funny? You know, that type of thing. Yeah, it's kind of funny with the horror movies. Uh, you always have a woman who's stuck in the closet, and yet, you know, two seconds after the guy, you know, the the, the animal or, or monster or person stops trying to get them, they suddenly think they're safe and can actually get out of the closet. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> I mean, I would sit there and just stay there for a good hour, you know. Uh, That's funny. Um, are gone. <laughs> yeah, right about the time too when we talked about remastering the trilogy, uh, one of the producers I talked to, and I forget which one it was. This was so I was probably going back, you know, a number of years ago, and he had talked about putting social messages into stories and screenplays, and he said, especially with movies, you really need to have a, a social message. Which at first I thought that was kind Period. of stupid, but when you think about it, if if you use it right, it could be a valuable tool. And one of the things I found, especially with the, the later chapters in Fractured Time, is uh, you know there were some social issues that actually came up in there that I actually put in with some of the, the newer, younger characters. So, and especially when then once I got to the new series, you know, yeah, there were a lot of social issues in there, and uh, I, I was surprised that I got really favorable attention with the newer series from um, from the different media markets for that, uh, for radio interviews and such. Uh, for instance. Uh, with with the the one episode, I guess toward the end of Fractured Time, it is um, the one the one girl that's you know been hooking up with Billy Brock. You know they're kind of a thing, and uh, he started after one of the scenes. They're sitting there, and he looks at her real serious and says, "How old are you really?" He's 24, and he finds out she's 17, and uh, he's like, "Oh gosh," you know. He goes, "He goes the rest of them aren't going to like this because the rest you know, the other people around him are older, are like his age or older." So now here he is with a 17 year old girl. And uh, you know, there's a, one thing in there where she's looking for some for a cigarette or something. He hollers at her that you know smoking's bad for you. Just some funny things. Um, the newer series kind of went all out with that because the lead, uh, the lead character uh, Will Cyrus is 18. He gets involved with a with a girl that's 16, and she's uh, he believes that she's a priestess or she's one of the priestesses, and it turns out she's a whole handful. She's a whole lot more than that. Well, they get involved. She gets pregnant. I mean, you always see the you know where people have the affairs, the characters have affairs, but nobody ever gets pregnant. So I decided, well, guess what mine do, <laughs> and that that created a whole lot of havoc for them. And yeah, you know, so the the whole series is more or less their adventures and how they just keep getting more and more responsibilities dumped on them as they go. You know, and some you know they they try to solve a lot of the problems in the universe, the wars, the alliances, and things like that. And you know, it's. But for their age, it's just they they just get overwhelmed with responsibility. You know, they have some good people around them, but they find out that there's a lot of groups you can't trust. I mean, even the military group that Will Saris is part of, you know, he gets an eye opener with from that in the second book and finds out it wasn't at all what what you thought it was. So, but yeah, like I said, the social messages they can be good, you know, if they're done correctly. Yeah, I always yeah, think that's something new I haven't heard before about the social messages in, in fiction. Yeah, it's it. You know, like I said, it's it's one of those tools, and I don't know that it always fits in a story. You know, but that's something I you know that they talk about that they like to look for. Uh, you know, when it comes to the movie end of it. But um, but I always think too, like Steven Seagal's movie, uh, I think it was Fire Down Below, about the oil rigs, 
and uh, that was so overwrought with with um, environmental messages. It actually, I hated it because of that. You know, not that I hate the environment or anything, but it just it was overbearing and it just ruined the movie. You know, so in that respect, you really have to be careful. Uh, you don't want to. I mean, you don't want to drown the movie in a message. But you know, if it's something, if it fits in there with your characters, it's a cool thing. Well, I'm going to remind everybody where to get your books, so that way uh, we get that get that taken care of. Uh, you have your own website, which is FractureTime.com. That's right. Uh, they can email me through the website. Um, you know, I'm always happy to hear from people. And you can also see as far as my conventions, where I'm coming from, where I'm going to. When yeah. you start seeing other planets on there, you know we found space travel. Where are you going next? Next will be Louisville, Kentucky, July 22nd for Fandom Fest. Awesome. So, and any of them after that? Uh, there's a, I'll be going out to Palm Springs in August. Uh, I may be doing a couple sightings out there. September in Rochester, uh, there's RockCon. It's a sci-fi anime convention. Uh, that I think it's September 24th. Um, October, I'll be at Spooky uh, SpookyCon down in Orlando. Uh, let's see. I know December I'll be in Pittsburgh for Steel City Con. So there's there's a bunch of them up there, uh, you know. But they, it seems there's so many of them, it's hard to keep up with. Yeah. You know, I, I know for next year I have a number of them lined up. I still haven't posted them yet, so I want to make sure I'll be able to get a table with them first. Yeah, that's uh, always the name of the game is, is having to pay ahead of time. Uh, you also your books are available not only in print format, but they're also available in Kindle and ebook. And they can get that directly from the publisher at azpublishingservices.com. That's az like it's the state of Arizona. Publishingservices.com. Well, any last messages for us, Mike, about what you uh, what you're doing and what you want to be doing in the near future? Well, let's see. I just want to say thanks to a lot of my friends out there in Atlanta. We had a, a well of a convention, uh, Sci-Fi SummerCon, this past weekend. And hopefully a number of them I'll see up in Louisville. But uh, I'm always looking forward to talking to new writers. Uh, that's probably my biggest thing when I go to a convention. Uh, anybody that, that wants some help, wants some advice, you know, I don't mind t- telling people about the, po- the, the pros and cons of all the different decisions you can make. Um, I don't mind telling people different avenues you could try, things that work, things that don't work. You know, so... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not particular about that, so I'm always open to people coming up and talking to me. So don't be bashful. Well, I thank you for calling, calling in, and we didn't get anybody who wanted to ask you a question or uh, comment. Because I talk too so, much. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would have stopped you. I would have stopped you if somebody wanted to call in. Uh, that's you know, the nice thing about this is that after after we run it. Um, I will give you the link to that and the code so you can put it on your own website uh, or on Facebook for people to listen to any time. So it's not just a one-time hit. It's something that keeps on giving. So if you miss or anybody who is a fan of Michael's, you did not totally miss him, uh, you can listen to this show in its entirety, either on his Facebook page by clicking on the link or by going to Blog Talk Radio and looking for KWAD Radio. His program will be in there, so that way you can listen to it in its entirety at any time at your leisure. So thanks, Mike, for coming on, and I will talk to you sometime soon, okay? 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And everybody, have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Okay, for those... For those who uh, were coming up next is going to be uh, Donald Jocks discussing the space program, and I'm going to have a short music interlude while I get queued up for him. So we will be right back. Thank you. You got 30 minutes, so keep fighting it. You know exactly what you want to talk about. afternoon. This is KWAD Radio, and we're now live talking to Donald Jocks. Are you there, Don? Hello, and good evening. This is the second hour of our show, and we're live now with Donald Jocks. With, uh, and he's going to be just discussing tonight a little bit more about what he talked about the other night. And that is uh, specifically on how to set up areas in your own backyard that could allow you to do your part for enabling the new space and uh, helping the future on the moon and beyond. So, Don, my specific question is, 
Uh, you had talked about a couple of projects that you were working on, and I wanted to go a little more into that. And then you were saying that you know each of us uh, on Facebook, you were saying each of us should set apart a section of our backyard or side yard or something around your house or or around your area if you're in an apartment and you know do something else uh, other than that. But to set aside the space. Uh, around our home to do these kind of projects and help help us, you know, further uh, further the space program. So I'd like to go a little more into that detail with you tonight. Do you have any okay, ideas? Well, well, let's let's start with a little bit of background, and I'll try and keep it brief. One of the things about space development that we all would like to see is that space development, in some way, should benefit us here on Earth. And the projects that we've been looking at recently are just those kinds of projects. The one that I'll be discussing tonight is um, about gardening and doing gardening in such a way that it replenishes not only your plants, but it literally builds upon itself. And if you don't keep tabs on it, it can grow more than you can handle so what this does is it takes a technique from the space systems that they've been developing called hydroponics. And one of the things that hydroponics does is you have to add a lot of expansive chemicals, and you've got to keep a lot of fresh water, and then you've got to sterilize your water, and then you've got to filter your water. Well, nature's been doing this for eons, eons and eons and eons, and they've perfected a great system. And basically, this system involves having some fish, that do their thingy in the in the water, and then you pump that water up like a swamp into all your plants. The plants feed off the stuff the fish give and then return the filtered water back to the fish. We end up doing this, you end up with a closed cycle system. With such a closed cycle system, minor adjustments can result in better performance, or poor performance, depending on the type of adjustments you make, and you can tweak the system to either be a large system or you can grow just a handful of fish that can take care of uh, a small selection of troughs of plants that you work with. Now, such a system doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, the system that I'm putting up on my patio is actually basically, I went down to Home Depot and I bought a five-shelf plastic unit which is barely 24 inches deep, and I only paid like $41 for it. I then went and got a cooler pump, and that, which cost me like $30. And then I went down to, I think Fry's was selling these, or maybe it was Walmart, uh, a little home swimming pool that holds about, oh, 100 gallons of water. It's the kind of square one that you blow up. And I paid $30 for that. Now, with this much and a few planting troughs, you have the foundation for assembling it all together to make the pump takes the water out of the pool, runs it to the top of your shelf unit where you, you then have your plants, and then your plants drain into each trough on each shelf. I've got three troughs on each shelf, and they each have a little hose on them that takes them and drains them down to the, to the trough on the shelf below, and then they all drain down to about the fourth shelf, and then the last troughs drain back into the fish tank. Wow. This whole thing is under a hundred dollars. Now there's oh, enough room to grow. Simple. Yeah, the the price is right. Um, 
and it's easy to maintain. The cooler pump is, you know, if you're going to go up the, the five feet or so, get at least a 7,500 CFM pump, and it will do a good job for you. It's designed to run continuously. Um, and all you're paying is just the electric for that pump to run the whole system. Now, this is very oversimplified, and there's all sorts of little things that you got to work on, like getting the the proportion of water that's pumped up and the water that comes into the tank. But once you get it flowing, it'll process the water. Choosing your plants is going to depend on where you live, and I strongly recommend that you read up on that to choose the right plants. And some of the things you're going to want to do is, because this is a continuous flow system, once you start that pump and you've got your plants in there and, and so forth, um, this water is going to be running all the time. So there are issues that I'll be talking about on the website, which I just got up and running uh, very soon, uh, lunarsettlement.com. On that site, I'll be talking about some of these details. But until I get those up myself, you can go to another website for a gentleman who's done this with a swimming pool called gardenpool.com. And on there, he actually has meetups, people who live in the, in the Phoenix metro area. They can go out and see what he's done and see how he's done this. What I'm working on is a much smaller system that can be done for a patio and things like this. And my goal is to perhaps grow um, some lettuce, uh, herbs, maybe uh, other vegetables such as carrots, and things that can grow in the planting material uh, with the continuous flow of water. So there's a lot of potential for this and a lot of variety that you can do with it. Wow. Are you there? I'm taking a breath. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it definitely seems like it that it's inclusive. I mean, it doesn't take that much space. I would. I mean, you think that somebody who has perhaps a plot or, or or maybe a small patio in their apartment, do you think that what what do you think they should do? Well, depending on the size of the, the one thing that's going to be affecting this is is that you want to match up the quantity of fish in your water tank with the number of plants you're going to work with. And Gardenpool.org has he's been at this for over a year. I'm still a newcomer to this, but I'm really proselytizing as hard as I can. On his site, he has an area you might have to hunt for. I don't remember the exact reference. He talks about how do you know how many fish will support how many plants. And he has a real basic formula that you can use to get a good idea. There are some other things to consider uh, and some more research to be done, and that is, 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 like Patty says, like you say, Patty, how much room do you really need? Well, the shelf unit takes roughly 24 inches deep by about 32, 34 inches wide, and it stands about, oh, I guess about four or five foot high. And then you're going to need something to hold the water at the bottom. Now, that can be a small little round kiddie pool, like the plastic ones you see out in front of Walmart for, what, 10 bucks or something like that. Maybe it's 15 by now. Or it can be something that's a little deeper but not quite as big around. So if you shop around, there's all sorts of options. Because keep in mind, it's just water and it's just fish. They don't need to be large fish. What kind of fish do you suggest? Um, Garden Pool uses, and, and here in the Mesa area, uh, he uses tilapia. 
they grow fairly quickly um, from the time that you populate your tank. Um, I think the the typical time they say is about six to nine months that tilapia grow big enough that you can uh, harvest them and actually eat them for meals. But if you are judicious and you husband them well, you can actually have a small aquarium to the side where you scoop out the babies that are going to inevitably come along, and you can keep a running uh, cycle of little fish to replenish or restock your your big tank with as you go along. And the plants, with a little bit of research, a lot of the plants can be harvested. Some of them, if you let go to seed, you can then harvest the seed, and now you can replenish your garden space. And this is the most important part, the ability to replenish it without having to spend money. When people plant a garden in the dirt, you have to run a rototiller. You've got to buy gas to run the rototiller. You've got to run your water. It has to water that garden for as long as you've got it in the ground. You've got to fertilize that ground every season. And usually you've got a lot of losses associated with that garden plot, whether it's in your yard, whether it's down the street at a community plot, or wherever it is. And gardens of this type take a lot of maintenance. The beauty of the hydroponics meshed with the fish to create what we call aquaponics is that the system, as long as you keep the water levels up and the pump going, and you monitor it for pests and things like this, generally speaking, you have a lot less maintenance and the system has certain, it has qualities that allow it to be self-correcting in a lot of ways. Now, it's not perfect, but what it does do is you don't need fertilizer, you don't have to till up the ground, you don't have to rent, beg, borrow, or steal a tiller, much less sit behind it for hours while you till up the ground, and of course, you don't have to have a plot of land to put it in. The next thing is, with this thing sitting on your patio, you can go from the kitchen right to the patio, snip off just whatever lettuce or herbs or grab a couple of carrots or onions, whatever it is you're growing for the dinner that night, and you don't have to uproot the whole plant and then refrigerate the darn thing. So there's a lot of ways to look at the benefits of what aquaponics, just as one method of life support can offer you. Well, I, I was curious. Uh, we have a big catchword now, which is organic. Everything needs to be organic. I mean, is this, is this like the ultimate organic or what? Well, sure it is because you're, you're putting zero chemicals into the whole system. And with, with just water out of the tap, between the fish and the plants, any solids, any particulates, any chemicals that are in there will gradually be depleted from the water as time goes on by the biological processes. And keep in mind, once you get one of these systems going, you don't just have fish and plants and water. You've got fish, plants, water, and you've got bacteria. You're going to grow algae in that tank. You're going to have a lot of things happening in this whole biological setup that is going to be happening to help keep that water in optimum shape. Now, does that mean you don't have to maintain it? Not in the least. You need to check it on a regular basis every day or so um, and make sure that your your first big issue is your water level. But 
as far as the chemicals, the aspect of being organic, it is about as organic as you can get. <laughs> well, that should make a lot of people happy then. This, this is the ultimate thing that they could be doing to not only go green and have organic food, but also to help the space program in the long run. So, uh, Absolutely. Just wanted to as, remind as everybody that uh, if you need want to call in, the guest call-in number is 714-242-5145. We can take calls and questions or comments from for Don here. Uh, we're also on chat, so you time to call in would be you can start calling in now. 714-242-5145. We were talking about organic and how they. How this? How this? Would this actually help us with, you know, uh, advances in our space program now? Well, number one, NASA has has worked for decades, among other research organizations, to create artificial uh, life support systems that are based on chemicals and electricity and all sorts of ways to artificially stimulate and filter air and water and waste for the astronauts in space. But one of the things that we keep coming back to is is that the Earth is a biosphere, and as a biosphere, everything in it has multiple jobs to do. The mistake that I believe that scientists make in all of their efforts, no matter, you know, they, they do wonderful work, but they tend to focus and specialize in on individually really, really focused areas. And this creates situations where you have to have everything exactly perfect or the system begins to fail. And we, we see this in our technology constantly. Uh, GPS systems that end up directing you to the swamp instead of to the beach. Um, uh, websites that all of a sudden aren't there, but you know it was there five minutes ago because something in the technology got wankerooed somewhere. Um, we have TV signals that digital signals should be better than the old analog, but routinely on over-the-air digital broadcasts, they, they glitch in and out all the time. And so the technology sometimes, when you take it so far, it becomes uh, diminishing returns. The biological systems offer very much a, a much more flexible, adaptable system. Not only that, but in biological systems, one part of the system doesn't do just one task. It does many tasks. The fish, for example, provides food. They eat insects. Fish also feed on a plant that you can grow in your system called duckweed. Um, the plants all or the fish also then provide the fertilizer that is pumped in the water up to the plants. So you get the fish provide several different aspects in the whole system. The plants also provide a haven and their root systems for bacteria and fungus that contribute to the filtering process. They need some of these bacteria and fungus in order for them to grow. Also, um, draw nutrients out of the, the water. They draw that fil filtration stuff out of the water and in the process filter that water for the plants down below. Uh, some plants even contribute to the health of other plants by depositing certain chemicals and nutrients back into, in our case, the water or the soil that other plants take up. So it becomes a community effort here rather than a technological marvel that doesn't work until you plug the doggone thing in. 
Um, and so these are some of the things. Now, how does this help us in space when in space there's no gravity for the water to flow downhill? Well, in space, we can actually bring in some of the tech to enhance the system by putting lids over the uh, planting bays and pumping the water through the plants in a certain direction and then also providing a lid over the water bladder so that the fish don't end up floating out into the cabin. So, so there are minor solutions that can be applied to these that can make these tools and techniques available to the free flow, low gravity situations in, in orbit. As for colonies on the moon or Mars, there's gravity there. There are some minor problems we're going to have to solve, like maybe we got to tip the, the trays up a little higher so that the lower gravity will pull the water down. But these are all minor solutions that we can solve the basic things to be able to establish a biome on the moon or even on Mars, which has – Mars is great. There's a lot of carbon dioxide up there. We could, The plants would just go nuts up there. That would be like sending a human down to Cancun. Oh, my God, they're in heaven. Do you think that there would be any problem with, with the growth uh, as far as being too fast or too slow? Again, that's going to, in any kind of a biological system, many things, it works like the chorus of a song. When you hear a really good song where you've got a chorus, you've got a band or an orchestra or things like this, everything works together to make the song work. Just as in most songs, you have different varieties of the songs where somebody takes a, a series of notes and they go up, somebody else takes that same uh, 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 stanza and they go down, but the song still works in both cases. So a biological system adapts and shifts depending on what's going on in the system. A technological system can't do that because it's designed to function in a very specific way. Whereas a biological system, you can adjust things. If you add a few more plants, your fish may do just fine. They may like the cleaner water. But by adding a couple of more plants, you've got a buffer there, and you can assure that the water going to your fish is even cleaner. They'll still fertilize the water for you. You can then add a couple of more fish. And you can gradually, by adjusting both of these, increase the size of your system. You can't do that with a technologically-based system, even when they're designed as a modular system. It just doesn't work. It's not as efficient because each module has specific power requirements, it has specific design requirements, and also performance benchmarks that it has to meet in order to be effective. A biological system has a lot of give and take that lets you moderate different things. Now, you can have in a biological system things that will attack it. If you get an algae bloom that gets too big for the fish to counter, then you're going to need to intercede. If you have a situation where, say, here in Arizona, we get a, we get 10 days of 110 degrees weather, and your water starts, your water level starts dropping fast, you're going to have to be paying attention and add water to make sure that water doesn't get too low for the fish. The same thing is true for your plants. If you've got 10 cloudless days and your plants are exposed to direct sunlight, you're going to need to put a shade over them to protect them from the direct sunlight of the heat. So but you don't have those kinds of options with a hydroponic, a 100% hydroponic system. Your system has to be 
in the exact same conditions from start to finish. But a biological system, you can use many small minor adjustments to correct for sudden extremes of situations. This is why I advocate biological systems over technological systems in specific areas. We still got to have a rocket and all of its technology to get us into space. But once we get there, we can apply simpler biological systems to handle our food, air, and water processing. And so there's a sense of that chorus of letting the song change just a little bit to suit the needs of the time. Well, I have a question for you about, um, we were talking a lot about chickens last time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and whether or not to what came first, the chicken or the egg. But specifically, <laughs> uh, how do we know how the chickens will handle, you know, the atmosphere of the of the moon? We and don't. Whether, we don't. So it'd be the, the reality like, is there. There are so many things we don't know how that it's going to behave. But here's the alternative. If we go to the moon or we go to Mars, a multi-billion dollar effort with technology that is supposed to behave a certain way, but when we get there, it doesn't, we have no recourse. There is no repair shop. There is no technician standing in the next room that can tweak it here, here, and here to make it function better in an environment that maybe they didn't factor some, some detail. And now they've got to call back to Mission Control. They've got to get the, these hundred heads together to figure out how to make this piece of technology adjust. A biological system doesn't face that issue. Most of the, the, the cause and effect is observable. Most of it's adjustable to a certain degree with small, minute adjustments that you can see the results fairly quickly. When it comes to putting plants, water flow, and chins or fish or, for that matter, bees and other insects on the, on the moon in a habitat, the lower gravity, the lower air pressure is going to affect them. But we don't have any way on this Earth to study those effects. Not here, no way. The closest thing we have is what's called the vomit comet, which is a plane that dips and rises and dips again to create short-term, about somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes of zero gravity that they can study different things in. Now, this gives them a lot of research time um, to study these types of things, but the reality is 15 minutes at a time, you're not going to be able to do any long-term studies. You cannot do studies on uh, larger animals like chickens or fish in that environment because once you go weightless, whoops, you've got to have a container for the fish. Once you go weightless, your chickens are going to be flapping and clawing to eat all. You know, I mean, we're going to have to tie them down. You're going to have to tie it down, and then they're going to be squawking and scratching and pecking because they don't know what the heck's going on. So there are a whole slew of problems that we face in taking animals or fish or, I mean, here's a thought for you. It makes me wonder how in the world the rooster's going to catch the hen, too. (laughs) Yeah, and and are they going to figure out how to hold still long enough to to get the job done? There's just way too many issues there when it comes to, uh, you know. Well, here's something else. We know that the bees are necessary to the pollination of certain plants, okay? Mm -hmm. So the suggestion is, is, well, okay, we should take a small hive of bees with us to the moon. 
But wait a minute. Let's think about this. Do we want these bees buzzing around the cabin for the three-day trip that they're on their way? They got nothing to eat. There's a problem. Transporting many of these creatures. Transporting the same with plants. Exactly. So we've still got to figure out many things about transporting them from the Earth to the moon or to Mars, for that matter. And how do we maintain them in a in a, a a life sense that they can survive the trip? But here's a kicker: when these creatures and assume, say, we sedate them in some way for the three four day trip, and we get them there and we put them into the habitat and they've got this space and we wake them all up, these chickens are going to go to hop, and they're going to end up five feet in the air. They are going to be scared (laughs) out of their wits. Um, The bees are going to go to flap their wings, and they're going to travel 10 feet instead of 10 inches. They're going to take time to get used to things and be running into stuff. We're going to be lucky if we don't have these animals and, and, and creatures hitting the walls, giving themselves headaches, trying to figure out how to navigate. So there's there's whole list of issues that we still face, and most of these are going to have to be solved by the settlers who actually arrive on site because we can't test these things on Earth. We have no way to know how these creatures are going to act or react. And here's the bugaboo. Whether we go with all technical solutions to get to the moon, which is going to take decades, they still haven't figured out how to get the the, the uh, waste receptor on the ISS to work 100% yet. They're still working on it. It's been up there for a year or two. So uh, the technological solutions still aren't even close to becoming close enough to perfect. Biological solutions have their own set of problems that we have to solve. And from the space perspective, or even a settlement on the moon or Mars, we're still going to have issues in acclimating any creatures we take with us, whether it's the fish, which are going to be inside the water. So there's going to be some buffering for them. But when it comes to creatures like bees or um, uh, flies, which have their place, or the chickens or fish, or even if we have dogs or goats, for crying out loud, they're going to have to acclimate. It's going to take time. Uh, I remember somebody would we, said once, Would we wind up putting the animals asleep while they are traveling because uh, you know, oh, the no, weightless you, situation would cause them problems, I would think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And these it's are, not, these are definitely not a situation where Noah was taking, you know, uh, two of every animal, but, you know, that was on a station, you know, even though it was a, a ship. It was still, yeah, you, it was still on Earth. And, and on Earth. The greatest issue you had there was... Uh, keeping the lawn away from the lamb, and perhaps dealing with the waste and having the food. Right. You know, yes, uh, those were his Making the problems. food last long enough for uh, right. you know, the water to go down and recede. I got to uh, tell you, I cannot, I cannot imagine the thought of being in a stable, in the stable, eating, sleeping, and drinking, in the stable with all the animals, and I tell you what, you ever seen a dung pile from an elephant? Oh, mackerel! Just in one day, or a rhino. Thinking, they they were in that in that uh, in that shift for that buffalo. Forty days of the rain plus some time after the rain before they hit land. So I mean, and and so again, even though we work out these biological tools and methods, 
we're still going to have to process the waste. We're still going to have all the same problems we have here on Earth. So if we can solve these problems on our patios, in our backyards, that we as individuals, not only are we going to help um, work out the issues for settling the, uh, the other planets, Mars, moons, and asteroids, but we're also going to make our world a lot greener. We're going to make it possible for us to uh, reduce our uh, grocery bill because we've got veggies and, and we've got fish. And if you choose to add the chickens to your system, if you've got a big enough backyard, now you've got eggs. If you grow more chickens, you can have chicken for dinner. Um, as long as you, you can manage these systems, and I have to give great kudos to um, uh, Gardenpool.com because he has addressed a lot of these issues and the whole systems interact. I mean, even the, the, the chicken dung ends up in the, in the fish water, and the fish water feeds the plants. And he has got a huge setup inside that swimming pool, and it works very well for them. Uh, they save a substantial amount on the grocery store every month coming out of that garden pool. And, and yeah, but I, found, she uh, said, I, I do remember she said that she can't eat the chickens because they already named them. Right. They, they turn their chickens <laughs> into pets. They can take the eggs. Because they haven't they added and made the eggs a pet. But, yeah, the chickens the chickens as pets does create an issue. So, and, and, of course, there's a question for you. What happens when we get settled on the moon or Mars and you women start bringing kids into that world? What are That's our what kids I, being I born on these I do believe that it takes two. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we help. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, sometimes we help. But the, the whole question then comes into play once we do establish a settlement, if we're in a biome and we've got these processes into place, and the biome is flexible enough that we we can add people or we can add animals to make the system more robust, more productive, and so forth, what does happen not only to the chickens as they develop and have more baby chicks, to the fish as they breed more fish, to the bees as they adapt to the environment, to the animals that we bring up to these um, outer space environments, what's going to happen to not only these creatures but also to us as we encounter these changed environments? And so there's, there are there are a lot of questions, but the reality is we ain't going to know till we get our butts out there. Right. And can't find there the is answers a, until you go. What's that? Can't find the answers until you go. Exactly, and I applaud the, the scientists out all over the world trying to solve many of these problems with technological solutions, but I, I've talked to a few of them. I've, I've looked at many of these reports and, and journals online, and the reality is that the cost to develop alternative solutions to biological processes is huge, and it takes decades to work out the bugs in these systems. And inevitably, even when we do work out the bugs, you have a short-term lifespan before something breaks. And if you're not near the planet Earth where you can get a spare part, your life support system just died. And so this is the risk that we face by putting all of our technology, in all of our eggs in the technology basket. We need to find a blending of the two. And this is what the projects that I'm working on try to do. Uh, as a side note, another project we have is the idea of demonstrating telepresence, which is the idea of uh, what they did with the Mars rovers. You had people on Earth doing remote control with the rover, 
but they had cameras on the rover so they could pick something in the view and tell the rover to go there. We have, in conjunction with the local moon society, collected some radio control cars. We've added uh, uh, transceiver TV, remote TVs that you can buy off the internet, and together we put a little TV screen on the transceiver. And now I can operate operate that remote control car out of my sight. I do not have to be looking at it. I got to tell you, that's quite an experience when you're used to watching the car driving it around in circles and crashing it into other cars or jumping and spinning or whatever to do. Try and do some of those things when your camera's mounted inside the car and you're looking at a TV screen. It's very, very different. Well, I was considering you know, having this as another another episode, but you oh, know, absolutely. Gonna, but the point I'm talk, trying to make we're is, talk is that, about this is that that, we're, that because okay. you don't know what it is you're looking at and the mm-hmm. telepresence, it mm-hmm. could be something that is you know uh, totally different. I mean, totally you, you run the car up into a wall, you walk outside and figure, oh, that's just the curb, right? <laughs> so the, the point I'm trying to make here is is by by introducing this is is that Technology has its place, and we need to take advantage of what it has to offer. We just need to make sure that we're blending technology plus biology in a way that lets the systems work together rather than always be competing between the two. Hydroponics in and of itself is a great system, but it takes a lot of energy in to get the amount of energy out. Aquaponics addresses most of that and reduces that energy a great deal, and I mean a huge amount, because you're not you're not having to buy chemicals, you're not having to filter the water, you're not having to have a lab nearby to test the quality and pH of the water, um, and so you know a lot of these things bring in expenses and bring in maintenance and bring in labor costs. That aquaponics literally, as a biological system, eliminates and becomes much more attractive as a modular, portable system that can be used in on your balcony. Um, you could literally take uh, six inches out of your stairway. If you really wanted to get creative with this, you could take six inches off of a, an outdoor stairway and turn it into an aquaponic system with your fish tank at the bottom, and you pump it up to a plant on the very top, and then it just cascades down through the, through the, the planters. I mean, you could do that. People could be very creative in building aquaponic systems, make them part of your living space. I've even talked with somebody who has uh, who took what I thought, what I was working on, and said, well, wait a minute. Why don't you put the pool at the bottom next to a wall, put your planters directly above it on the wall, make like a bookshelf planting system, and then when your plants start growing, they're all on the wall facing the sun, uh, it's it's very very compact. You can do that, and that'll be one design that we'll actually be uh, building and putting onto the website at Lunar Settlement to show the various variations of aquaponics that people can do. We're still in the infant stages of the website, um, and so this stuff's going to take me a few weeks to get up, and then as our research begins to ramp up, we'll be including that as well. But the key that aquaponics lets us do is it lets us think outside the box. It lets us look at other creatures who can help us accomplish what we need to get done. So the, his website, website right now is donaldjocks.com. That's Donald, 
J-A-C-Q-U-E-S.com. He's got a lot of his projects right there, and then he's got a new one, which he said it's not quite up yet, right? Well, LunarSettlement.com is up, and we've got the initial opening pages are up and operating. There's some introduction. There's some some links on there. Garden Pool link, uh, is on, and it's GardenPool.org, I think. There's a GardenPool.com. I'd have to look at the link. Um, Google Garden Pool. You'll find it. Uh, I'll double check. Um, yeah. And uh, so LunarSettlement.com is is where the, 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 the space, the aquaponics, all these things are going to be migrated from my personal site. I'm going to be migrating them all over to the Lunar Settlement site in the coming weeks and formatting it so it's easier to get to each each project and so forth. So, But, yeah, um, my site, DonaldJacques.com, and the Lunar Settlement site is under construction, and we're, we're adding things to it regularly. Um, so, yeah, check them both out. Also, you can get uh, it is by the way it is gardenpool.org. Mm. Uh, I pulled it up for you. So yes, it's gardenpool.org, and uh, he also has his own. You can catch him on Facebook. He's yes. in the Moon Society. You're in a couple groups. Want to tell him about that? Uh, Moon Society, uh, the uh, Living Universe Foundation. Um, I, I think I'm also signed up for National Space Society and um, some other groups that I'm on on Facebook, and, and I follow their websites. I'm constantly looking for new ideas and new material uh, to include as I'm preparing this idea for actually homesteading and settling the moon. Before we, we look to do that, we've got to figure out all sorts of problems that many of these sites and organizations have addressed over the years, such as funding, such as, you know, where do you find good people? How do you get them to work together? How do you define projects? How can we then, uh, what are the legal issues of going up and homesteading on the moon? How are we going to get there? And the beauty is, is, is I've got some really, you know, I've discovered some interesting connections that we can make that we should do in another discussion that talk about how we might actually homestead the moon, how we can finance it, how we can get the public interested, and stuff like that. Yes, we can have, I think that our next program, we should discuss the actual funding of uh, homesteading space. By the way, Don, Donald Scott is booklet up for sale at the publisher's website as an e-book as well as a print book at azpublishingservices.com. It's AZ, like the state, publishingservices.com. You can get his booklet and uh, or his e-book there. Also, he has two fiction books, Ancestors, which is a historical fiction, and with a little bit of fantasy elements. And then we've got Moonstone, which is a coming-of-age fantasy story. You can get those also on the publisher's website for free shipping. Or you can find them on Amazon. So, Don, you want to wrap it up for us tonight? Anything you want to say about Ashley's, you know, putting a little bit of money in your own uh, project at home? <laughs> um, I'm going to focus again in on the aquaponics. Aquaponics represents a combination of ideas 
in their birth with hydroponics, and when they went to adding fish to hydroponics, they limited a lot of the technological hurdles. Now, people at home can, on their patio, on their stair, on a wall, set up a home aquaponics system for under $100. And that makes it reachable so that anybody can grow herbs, food, fish, right on their patio without having to spend a lot of money and without having to have a lot of chemicals and labs to test your water for you. Give it a shot. I think it would be great if if you were talking about, you know, being creative and finding creative ways to build this. Exactly. It would be terrific if some people would actually, you know, pull the resources, a little bit of money, and actually build something and be creative. And when they do it, they can put it into you. You know, the information on how they did it and pictures, maybe, and you could absolutely. Do it on your and, and that's one of the areas that we're hoping to open up on the Lunar Settlement website, because the idea of the Lunar Settlement website is to entice people to contribute their ideas, and it may even be possible. One of the things that we're going hoping to do with our shelf unit um, is to create a kit that will make it easy for people to to build it themselves. Will they be able to buy that through you or through another company? or? If we ever get it developed, yes. Okay. Well, that sounds like a great wrapping up here, and I appreciate your time, Don. And uh, we'll see you next time at KWAD Radio. It's been a pleasure. been a pleasure. Thank you, Betty. We're going to have a short interlude, uh, about a minute and a half, before um, I wrap it up with some final uh, tidbits on publishing and how you should be uh, setting up your manuscript for professional look. So with that, I'm going to put a hold, and I will get back with you within about a minute and a half. Thank you.
afternoon. We're at KWOD Radio, and for the last seven minutes here, we will be discussing a little more what we got knocked off the other night, and that is how to uh, how to see some of the, of the problems that that you're that you're making, maybe making on your manuscripts that make it less than professional to send out to agents and and publishers and editors. Because I always say that one thing you should be making sure you do is not to make your editor your first reader. And uh, you do that as obviously, you know, once you say the end at the end of your your manuscript, it's not when you're done. It's actually the beginning of the, what we call the editing process. And when you're going back through and, and obviously reading through it, I always say that you, what you should do is walk away from it for a little while. In order to, that way, you can look at it with fresh eyes. Uh, if you try to edit it right away, you're not going to find anywhere near the same amount of mistakes and, and errors that you're that you're making. And, and everyone does; they have ones that they usually do on a regular basis. Um, getting into a habit of, of of typing something a certain way or writing something a certain way, and and you have to type, kind of find out where you things that you're doing wrong, and then break the cycle in your next project, not doing that again. And it's always a growth process every, you know, whenever you're learning something new um, or something that you've been doing for a while that you just have bad habits and you would like to try to pick some of those up. And one way you do that is you get a critique group. Uh, you know, being part of a critique group is how I started. And it was, I can't even tell you how great that is because you have a group who are diverse enough that can take your manuscript and in sections and actually you know tell you what they think about it, um, some weaknesses and, and pluses and minuses that you're writing in the story itself. And really hammer out some sections that, that, that were weak before. And uh, bring out things that you yourself, because you, you obviously think that you You've got a manuscript, you know, the manuscript that you've got in front of you is like, you know, your child. So nothing wrong with your child. And uh, nothing to be for the truth, obviously. This one does not, every, no child is perfect. And just like the old manuscript is perfect. And so you need to take the time to, uh, you know, get in front of a critique group. And if you can't find a critique group, you can try to meet up. Meetup groups have you know really great, really awesomely awesome uh, writing groups that that can help you out. And you need to find one that you're comfortable with, and maybe perhaps has the focus of whatever you're writing. If it's a romance group, then I would suggest getting. With, uh, if you're writing romance, you should get in a romance group. If you're writing science fiction and fantasy, especially science fiction and fantasy, then you need to find a group that that of uh, that. These people actually read science fiction and fantasy um, because they are open to paranormal circumstances and, and ideas and far out things that that science fiction and fantasy writers tend to come up with. Um, they're not technically oriented uh, people, so they, they they really do think outside the box. That's probably not a good good thing to uh, to work with nonfiction authors. For somebody who's science fiction and fantasy, um, 
completely different type of writing. Um, my suggestion also is reading out, reading out loud. Uh, you hear a lot of things you you didn't hear before, words that you thought were there, what not. But again, the important thing is not to read it as soon as you're done. You need to set it aside for a certain amount of time. And honestly, I would suggest at least a month. And I know most of you are saying, but wait a minute. I want to make money at my at my work. Well, I have to tell you that not everything that you write should be actually published. So with that in mind, you need to keep that thought in your head saying that everything that you write is actually marketable. And so in other words, you're not going to make money in everything you write. But the important thing is that you're learning from the experience in order to make you a better writer and obviously make your readers love your writing and love your work more because you've taken the time to learn more and to become that writer. Um, as well as reading aloud, you'll have the, you know, uh, I don't ever suggest you read your manuscript on the screen. Um, I edit a lot of people's work on, on the computer, but then again, I haven't. Uh, it's a little different for me because that's, that's how I write it as well. So. Uh, but on the other hand, since I write on the computer, I actually print it out and actually put it um, on hard, you know, piece of paper because it does make a difference. Um, an, editor, an editor also will either edit you know, on screen or they'll edit uh, on paper. My suggestion would be editing on paper. Um, there's a lot of things that they're missing because it's not. So those are a few tips and tricks that I wanted to impart on you. And you can always write to me. Um, I'm on Facebook. And my Facebook page, facebook.com slash pj dot H-U-L-T-S-T-R-A-N-D. And you can find azpublishingservices.com online. Just Google me. You'll find me. Till next time, this is KWAD Radio, signing off.